Welcome to Doing CX Right, a podcast where we discuss how to differentiate brands by doing customer experience right. I'm your host, Stacey Sherman, an author, award-winning keynote speaker, and mentor passionate to help you humanize business and improve experiences to achieve real results. My next guest is Anthony Coppage, who brings design, marketing, product, and sales teams together formally through OKRs and an agile process. He's leading this effort inside IBM's global digital sales and knows a lot about breaking company silos and improving revenue, profitability, and the entire customer experience. You may be wondering, what the heck is an OKR? What's all the hype about being an agile business? And what does he mean by stopping the stupid to deliver outcomes over outputs? This is such an informative discussion, and you will look at your business and current projects in a whole new way. I have one request. Please share this episode with others who can benefit. Subscribe to Doing CX Right Podcast on your favorite channels for updates. And leave me a review. Feedback is a gift and it means a lot. Now, let's get on with the show. Hello, Anthony Coppage. Welcome to the Doing CX Right Show. Hello, Stacey. How are you? I'm fantastic. <laughs> I wish I had your voice. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I appreciate that. Oh, it is just music to my ears. Well, who are you? What do you do? Because clearly there was radio in your background. Oh, radio was back in my college days at a college radio station where I ended up uh, learning a lot about audio and video. And I did the whole broadcast television career path for a while. But yeah, that was many moons ago. And until then, uh, you know, after that, I should say, I've just had the opportunity to just speak. So hopefully uh, this will be entertaining, informative, and fun for everyone. Uh, Not because of my voice, but because of the information we're going to discuss today. Absolutely. So what do you do professionally? I am the lead for the transformation for digital sales at IBM. So my technical title is the Principal Agile Digital Sales Global Transformation Lead, which is a mouthful. So I just, uh, I'm this guy, you know, (laughs) I work at IBM um, and in the technology space. So I work on the digital sales side which is generally our inbound side, you know, for for that. And then I work with marketing, ops, um, HR, and outside sales as well. But the the main focus is specifically around our customer, end-to-end customer journey and what we're doing to try to make that experience better for them, for our business partners, and for our sellers. So I have three sets of clients that I really think about. Mm, Which makes perfect sense why you're on the Doing CX Right show, I must say. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> multiple clients, not just one. Yeah, And it's the uh, client-centricity is at the core of everything we do. Yeah. So it's a transformation, which means we're going from one state as a legacy company to a new state. And it's uh, leveraging the principles of Agile, business mm-hmm. agility, mm-hmm. and OKRs, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. Absolutely. So tell me why is this your career choice? You know, there's um, a Venn diagram that I describe this way. If you had three overlapping circles, one of them would be your passion. That's what you cannot not do. 
the thing that just oozes out of you. Then you've got your capabilities where you've got skills and experience and capacity to do things to, to deliver value and create value. And then you've got profitability where you, where you could actually make an impact and have a career or a job and get paid for that. A lot of people have um, two of those three. I want all three. So I want to be right in the middle. And I don't think that's happiness. I think that's fulfillment. And so for me, being the way I am is, uh, is a choice. And so I want to bring all of me to everything I do. So there's not an Anthony at work and an Anthony at home. There's just Anthony. And I don't make that distinction in terms of how I represent or how I bring myself. So why I am the way I am is that I've really learned how to identify my strengths and manage my weaknesses. So mm. like a lot of us, I've done the, the Myers-Briggs, the Strengths Finders, even the Enneagram, but I found that it was the combination of understanding the know thyself to metnoske in Latin, know thyself. And to, to do that, that self-awareness has enabled me to say, I know what I'm really good at. I know what I'm not. And I, I want to take what I'm good at and manage my weakness. I'm not trying to make a weakness a strength or become well-rounded. I'm trying to be disproportionate and bring disproportionate value in the areas where I'm extra strong. So I fell into that over time and uh, understanding about that and then therapy and counseling helped. But ultimately, it was about eight years ago that I really began that intentional journey of how do I make that shift. And it's been a, a, a really hard but rewarding and fulfilling ride since. Mm, I love how you're using the word fulfillment because that's so much about experiences and we have a choice in our experiences and, and fulfillment. And this whole episode could just be about that. What's a fun fact that people may or may not know about you? Let's see. My grandpa is a, or was, he's passed, a very famous jazz musician. And um, uh, he was played with uh, big bands uh, like Duke Ellington and Count Basie, um, Stan Kenton. Um, so you name it, he's been there. And when he came to visit us when I was 13, he lived in Germany and he uh, led a band over there as part of the, the Stuttgart Philharmonic. And he came and stayed with us during the summer. He practiced every day upstairs. And he said, hey, son, he always called me son. He's a son, uh, I'm going to ask some of my buddies from my big band days call me while I'm upstairs practicing. So when they call, will you just get their name and let them know that you're going to come get me well, and then I'll take the call. Sure. So this is like, you know, 1984 or whatever. And the calls would come through and there'd be these, these people calling, asking for butter. So Bobby, Bobby Burgess's name, his nickname was Butter. And, uh, and I'd ask who it was, and, and I got to talk to some really neat people. Um, I got to chat with Doc Severinsen, who led the band for Tonight Show for, with Johnny Carson back in the day. He and my grandpa used to travel uh, through the South in the 50s and 40s, and they would um, stop in, in the bus, and they would go in and get food for the, for the band because back then the, the black band members wouldn't be served. So they were the only two white guys. So they would go in and say, we've got a uh, basketball team. They're all asleep. So we're coming in to get all their dinners. We're going to take it to the bus. And that's how they ate on the road. Uh, I got to meet uh, Slide Hampton, uh, great jazz trombonist, Stan Getz. I played saxophone, so that was neat. But this is like, we're probably going yeah. into too much detail. Sorry. It was a neat thing to have a, a grandpa who, who was in those circles and, uh, and then being able to talk to Frank Sinatra and hear a story about how my grandpa whooped him and uh, his buddies at, um, at poker in Vegas and went and bought him Aston Martin with the winnings that night. Um, yeah, yeah, really interesting uh, backstory, mm -hmm. but it's probably too much. 
Oh, that's okay. I uh, another day we'll go into more of that because that's fun, fun, fun facts. So let's go into what you do today, and the topic is about OKRs and agile business, and what does that have to do with customer experience? Why is it so important? So let's break it down first. What is an OKR? So OKRs are objectives and key results. They were invented by a guy named Andy Grove, who was CEO of Intel. And then a guy named John Doerr wrote a best-selling book called Measure What Matters. And he really codified some of that. And it became a really helpful way to align towards customer value. And so I really like that approach. Agile was developed in uh, about 2001 is when it was the Agile Manifesto was written, but it's, it's based on previous principles like anything else. But the idea was how do we make software get delivered faster? I mean, if our listeners here remember Windows 95, that came out in 1995 and it took three years to develop a new software, Windows 98. Well, now if you have your smartphone, when's the last time it did an update? Probably a few minutes ago. So you get incremental updates in software. That was the idea behind agility. How do we deliver and create create and deliver value in very small steps, learn, pivot, deliver, and just do it again and again. So there's a lot of experimentation, but it's low risk because you're doing it very quickly. And as a result, you deliver something much sooner and then you can learn from that and end up better than where you would have gone if you tried to build it in secret and then release it all at once. Mm. So Agile came from that. But the principles and the value, Stacy, are what I took away because that to me was transferable to every part of every business. And so I've applied it to agile sales and agile marketing, where we say, how do we make the, the customer, how do we make the customer sit at the very center? And then we orbit the customer, not the customer orbiting us. And so what we've done is we've found ways to build a model with a focus on creating and delivering value through a mindset shift to help prioritize and visualize highest value work, to ruthlessly reduce or eliminate low value work, what I call stopping the stupid, and then continuously improve through deliberate feedback loops between teams, leaders, partners, and clients. And so those feedbacks help validate the data or un dis uh, disvalidate, unvalidate the data so that we know how to make better choices. So that's been the focus. And what we're doing is levering something that was intended for something else and having great success at saying, we're not successful unless and until the client's successful, until the prospect's successful. And we've applied that with sales and marketing to really focus on what's in it for them, not what's in it for us. And most businesses built their, their KPIs around what's in it for them. We want this revenue. We want this margin. We want this market share. We want whatever. Fine. Those are great. We should know those. But then we should go build and create value and deliver that value for the benefit of the customer. Because if we do that consistently, well, and at scale, we do hit the revenue, the profit, the market share. Those become the byproducts. They're no longer the points. So that's a shift from 20th century thinking of business of what's in it for the shareholder or st stakeholder to what's in it for the 20th centuries, what's in it for the client, where the power has shifted. And we're recognizing that and then actually leaning into it. So you talk about stopping the stupid, which is very catchy. But what does that mean? What's the stupid in air quotes? Let's do an easy one. How many people are in too many meetings? right? Like the hands go up, look at LinkedIn, look at Twitter, but it's just easy. Everybody talks about this meeting could have been an email, right? There's a reason mm. for that. And what it is, is there is a 
legacy mindset that says we need to bring people to talk about everything. But that's not actually true. What you need is people to have information to make informed decisions, but that doesn't require a meeting. A meeting really should only exist as an example here to make a decision or to solve a problem or both. Mm -hmm. And if you're not doing that, do you really need a full recurring meeting with a lot of people in it? Probably not. So we want to say, is there a stop the stupid? Is it stupid to, to waste a lot of time? Yes, it's stupid to waste a lot of time. Meetings aren't bad. There are bad meetings. Meetings aren't stupid. There are stupid reasons to have meetings. So one of the things we did, for example, was eliminate all status update meetings. I don't have any. My teams don't have them. So that would be, on average, what I found, about a 30 to 35% decrease in meeting attendance per week, just instantly, like a free day to just get heads down, we're done. Or maybe even go deliver some value instead of being in a meeting where you're not able to contribute or receive any value. That's a simple example, stop the stupid. Because, Stacy, there's only two ways to improve. And this might be a surprise to some people, but you either reduce or eliminate downside or you create or optimize upside. Those are your two options. There's no other way. So if you're going to reduce downside, it has a double whammy effect. One, you stop the stupid, so there's less uh, frustration. Employees are less you know, likely to leave because it's such a terrible whatever situation, poor process, poor system, poor culture. And you instead say, hey, we're going to stop that. So you don't have to do that, which immediately sets them up for the potential to do something valuable. So it's a double whammy. You, you not only stop the stupid, you now make the potential. The potential now is for high value. And how do you prioritize towards high value? We do that with OKRs. So that's an example of what I use that air quote, stop the stupid. I'm saying there's stuff that's low value. Why are we doing it? Because we've always done it. That's not a good enough reason. So we need to have the empowerment to say, is there something better? And if the answer is yes, stop the stupid. Mm. So you you talked about ending that meeting. Now, how do you find an effective way to share the updates? Also, where people feel included, because that's a very sensitive Absolutely. topic. Absolutely. So if you have the ability to influence or decide or speak in in a meaningful way around any topic, you should probably be in, in that meeting or in that conversation or in that discussion, uh, whether that's online, offline, synchronous, asynchronous, right? But when you can neither receive nor add value, what are you doing? And usually it feels like, well, I have to be here. I was invited or I have to do this. Mm -hmm. Why do you have to? What if we could say yes, yes, but not yet? Or no? What if we could do that? And we can. So part of what we're doing with OKRs, you asked, what do we do if you don't have status updates? How is status shared? We represent the status real time all the time. So we use software for this. We use Workboard. But what Workboard does, workboard.com, is just OKR software. So it's built around OKRs. It's just a way to do it. And what it allows us to say is, what are the things that we're going to focus on aspirationally to create and then create and add value for our prospects or clients or for our sellers or for our business partners, whichever one clients I'm focusing on? And we, our teams come together and say, we have the expertise to understand something. We've listened, we've received feedback, we've done the market research, we have the data, and we think the best thing is X. We're actually not asking the executives to tell them what to do. We're asking the executives to set the destination and get out of the way. Mm -hmm. We don't need a map with a pre-described route. We want to say, use the data you have as a GPS device, 
metaphorically speaking, to make good decisions as you go, knowing this is the destination, but how you get there, 100% up to you guys, because you're the expert. So we want to empower those teams to do that. Well, when you do that and we visualize it, we can see what did we commit to that's client-centric, that's the customer's dead center, what's in it for them, how are we measuring progress towards delivering that, what's in the way of that, who should be involved, how are we doing with that, and then how do we say we've delegated not just the responsibility, but the authority that goes with it. So I'm not asking someone to work out of their level of authority because it's no longer a pyramid. Now I think of it as kind of like sideways. So everybody's level, we're even, all ideas are equal, not who has the highest paid or biggest position or whatever. We're saying all ideas are equal because the best ideas often from come from those closest to the problem. And that's either going to be your client, your partner, your seller, your whoever. Yeah. And, and, and when you have those people together, you're able to go actually solve for the root cause, not just the symptom. So something that I love about OKRs but cautious of is OKRs is a vehicle to help break silos. I love that different departments come together to solve mm -hmm. a business issue. Usually it's customer impacting. Mm -hmm. So love OKRs for that. The one thing that I'm cautious about in the organizations I've worked at over years is that, that it can slow things down. Wow, that's very interesting. So I, I would wonder if the way it's been done has been a problem because it, the way, I'm going to just take it right out of the book from John Doerr, right? Or from Andy. But if you talk about it, you're, you're looking at your OKRs are set maybe a quarter in advance and you're looking as you go by chunking the work up into small bits. This is why I think Agile and OKRs work well together, well together, because Agile is the breaking up of work into small components with just the people needed who can do something about it, making sure that we understand those dependencies cross-functionally, multiple teams, and making sure that we have alignment on how do we go deliver that value and what's required. By opening the communication up, you get better coordination. And when you have better coordination, you have better collaboration, which should lead to better client value. So the speed is normally increased, not decreased when you're tying OKRs with Agile. Correct. And maybe that's the difference. Maybe Agile's not connected to the OKR at times. Maybe it's the old waterfall. I don't know. <laughs> but at the same time, what I'm referencing is an opportunity for listeners is that once you really understand, and we'll get into how do you actually even begin an OKR, at the same time, if there's some small wins literally just go off and do them like small wins yes. what happens is there's a process to when execution happens and so i've seen that maybe it'll be a month later where it could be the the member of that team like just go do that right now it's such an easy thing to cross that i t <laughs> dot that i like it it's Sometimes you have to be careful that meetings don't turn into more meetings until the execution happens. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You have to be able to say that your execution is the litmus test of your strategy. If you can't execute on it, maybe you don't have the right strategy because you don't just go execute. It is entirely possible to do work that's prioritized that doesn't lead to value. 
you can, that's just goal setting, right? That's not OKRs. So -hmm. what we would do is say, look, we want to have a way to say that outputs are potentially helpful. Maybe you should go do that thing. But outcomes are wholly essential. So it might be that you go do something very fast, but if it doesn't actually move a needle that matters, the question I would ask is, should we have done it? Not could we do it? Should we do it? Mm. So we want to be clear because to be clear is to be kind. So we have clarity with alignment to say, not only do we understand what's being asked of us, but we're aligning the effort, the prioritization, the coordination, and the communication so that we are all in lockstep on how we're going to get there together. Yeah. And sometimes there's an individual contributor doing something and they can run off and knock something out. But if the work isn't aligned, it's very, very possible to do a bunch of stuff and that stuff not actually lead to the delivery of value. It, there's always work to be done. Busy is not a badge of honor, right? That's a badge of typically not having great prioritization. Oof. So what we want to do is say, there's a level of trust across teams in any organization that is inversely proportional to the level of fear present in that culture. Yeah. So if you want to know why they won't share and why there are their silos, usually that's because someone's protecting something, usually their own butt or their boss or whatever. So fear is actually the problem. How do you solve for that? You have to make it psychologically safe. So we have to enable trust because the opposite of fear is not courage. Courage is just action in spite of fear. The opposite of fear is trust. Yes. Well, so going back to OKRs, listeners, let's pretend that, not pretend, probably real, that some percentage don't know what an OKR is. They're at their companies. They want to take advantage of what you're describing. What's Mm -hmm. something they can do to actually create an OKR and, and begin a beginner's path? So to know what OKRs are about, and again, it's it's like another acronym. Do we really need another acronym, another thing to do? Uh, OKRs are not a thing to do. They're a way to be. Agile should not be a thing to do. It should also be a way mm-hmm. to be. So we're really talking more philosophy than any kind of methodology. Mm-hmm. So if you believe that putting the customer at the center is important, and if you believe that you should prioritize value that you can create and deliver, and if you believe that the people most capable of doing that are those closest to the problem, then OKRs are probably going to be great for you. But if you don't, they probably won't, right? Because if you're just going to do what a lot of people do is they go, well, I got goals. That's OKRs. OKRs are pretty much goals. Let's just keep, I will tell my teams what their OKRs should be. That's not OKRs because what we want to say is those closest to the problem tell us what to do, not the other way around. So let me say it this way. OKRs are not a way to judge performance. So they're not a performance tool. They are instead crucial for the way to become client-centric over shareholder-centric and replace fear of failure with the trust to make better mistakes and improve the customer success. If you resonate with that statement, OKRs are really ideal for you because all they do is codify what value you're going to create and deliver and how you're going to measure your progress towards that. And anything that doesn't move those needles, you should also measure, but then understand the impact. If 30% of your effort of your work, of your team's work isn't towards your OKRs, you have a good question to ask. Should we be doing that 30% of the work? Sometimes the answer is we have to. Okay, well, then we're not going to deliver 100%. We're going to deliver maybe 70% or 60%, right? Because there's a real understanding of time and prioritization being linked. So if you want to understand why we do or don't do something, ask, 
that question. OKR is a way to take multiple teams, multiple parts of an organization and bring them together to say, what's best for the end user, for the customer? What's best for them? And what's in the way of that? So much of this is about how you prioritize what you're not going to do, what you're not going to let keep happening versus what you're going to go build and do brand net new. So stop the stupid is a big part of it, right? Reduce downside, mitigate or eliminate downside to increase upside because it's actually pretty hard to optimize existing upside. It can be done, but you're almost always better off to, to reduce waste or eliminate waste in meaningful ways for people. I feel passionate in this process that you have to bring the customer that persona that you're looking to interact with to the table in that agile process. Because sometimes, many times, brands will make the decision from the inside out. So I want to emphasize the importance of what you're talking about. And if you really want to know the customer lens, you can't just do that through your employees. Do you agree? Absolutely. You got you to gotta talk to the business partners, the actual end users, yes. um, everybody that's involved in that value chain. You need to talk to them and ask them, what was their experience like? What went well? What didn't? What would, what would make it so much better? What would make it 1% better, 10% better? What are the little things that it's just kind of a hassle? And if you just get rid of those little things, you're actually starting to make bigger strides towards building the trust of then solving for the big things. You don't have to go you know, knock down the big thing. You can go do a bunch of little things that help people feel that A, feedback is valued, and then B, acted upon. Because when you do that, people do two things. They give you more feedback and better quality feedback because it's worth their time now. You've demonstrated that their feedback leads to change. Mm -hmm. So OKRs are about client-centric outcomes. So an outcome is always measurable across two dimensions, value to the customer and the level of investment required. So if you want to understand that, that helps you with basically ROI calculation. I mean, that's really what we're talking about. But who's ROI? The customers. In fact, I have a, a deck that I share five gauges on in sales. And I talk about this, that there's five things most sales organizations would, would measure. They would measure new logos, brand new customers that they've never had before. What was the yield of new compared to existing the customer satisfaction surveys like NPS or something like that, customer retention, what's the churn rate, customer referrals, and customer lifetime value. Those are the five things that around customer centricity you're going to measure. And this also works in support organizations, not just sales. Everybody's trying to figure this number out. But we're looking at those for what's in it for us. What was our number of new logos that we landed? What's What do the customers say about their satisfaction with us? And I want to flip these and go... What was the number of new logos that now can do something they couldn't do before? How much more successful are they because we helped them yeah. and we're partnering with them? What was their satisfaction with their customers now that they've added this functionality feature or benefit, whatever? What was the retention rate that that helped them retain more of their clients? I'm actually trying to take their metrics, their KPIs for success and understand those and make them part of my value understanding. Because when I understand what they value, I know what to value, right? Mm -hmm. So when you want to know what kind of outcomes to achieve, the kind that make them successful. Yeah. So we should benefit from that. That should increase revenue and profitability, assuming we have a good product and we're priced well or service. But ultimately, you're focusing on what's in it for them so much that the natural byproduct is you win. Yes. But it's not the point. That's, that's the biggest shift here about customer centricity that I think is so valuable. When you put them first, 
they may not always be right. The customer is not always right. You never make them wrong, right? So what we want to do is figure out how do we help them be successful. The more you listen and learn and ask and get that feedback about what success means to them for their clients and for their organization, ah, how much better can you go create and deliver that value? I say a whole lot better. Absolutely. Well, with minutes left, I told you this would go fast. (laughs) Yes, ma'am. So... Two questions left. What's the best leadership advice you've either been given or received? Or you've given or received, I should say. <laughs> oh, that I've given? Oh, uh, let me go to what people have given me. I think I would be more comfortable with that. Um, best leadership advice. Do the right thing is going to be probably something that everybody's heard. But to me, that means something very particular. What's the right thing for their benefit, not for mine. So I got to think about what's in it for them. If you've ever, you ever been in someone else's shoes in a situation, you can have empathy for that. If you have not been in their shoes, you cannot have empathy for that. You can have sympathy for it. I can sympathize with it. But empathy is putting yourself in their shoes. So even if you've not been through it, empathy is saying, I can imagine what it would be like if X happened. Yeah. Think about what it's like um, in telcos. I have, uh, we use Verizon. You know, and Verizon has a deal for new customers. I don't get that deal. That doesn't feel good, right? So I, I want to know why is it that if it's statistically proven, it's harder to keep a cutter than customer than get a customer. Why do you prioritize getting customers and not prioritize keeping customers? So I actually want to understand what's doing the right thing there, keeping your customers happy. Do you want new logos? Of course you do. You want new customers? Of course you do. But gosh, take care of who you have first. I've never understood that. I'm sure there's math behind it. But ultimately, doing the right thing is doing the right thing because that's the right way to treat a customer. Yes. And I want to value them, not just get the value from them. And the last question as we end this, if you could go back in time to your younger self, let's Uh say 20, based on what you know now that you didn't know then, what's the one thing you would say to, to younger Anthony? The nurture that you had in an abusive family dynamic does not have to define your future. If you're willing to look at the lies you believe or were told about yourself and replace them with the truth, the freedom you have to choose differently is unlimited. That's poetic. Thank you. That's what I would do. I would definitely do that. Love it. Well... Thank you so much for being here, sharing your wisdom. And I'm going to make sure in the show notes, people know how to get in touch with you and social media links. And thank you really for being here. Oh, thank you. It's really an honor to be on a show where you have got so many great guests. Um, I feel just really privileged to be a part of the lineup. And I hope that uh, for somebody out there, there was some nugget or some line or something that was said that gives you hope, encouragement, and maybe even a next step. So thank you. 100%. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining today. I hope you will apply the lesson shared and also requesting if you would leave a review on Apple, it would mean a lot. Head over to doingcxright.com to learn more ways to connect with me and improve your CX. Until next time, I'm Stacey Sherman, Doing CX Right.